Thank you, Dr. Smith, for that um, introduction. I also want to thank Dewey Bertolini and uh, Greg Beely for uh, having me preach here at Spurgeon Fest. I definitely consider it a great honor. I think back to my first year here at the Masters College back in 1988. I think that uh, Will Patton, Worley Kennedy, and I think someone else was, was preaching. And I can remember sitting in the bleachers and thinking to myself, man, what an honor to be a part of the Masters College and to be able to stand up there and to be able to share your heart and to share what God's truth would have for us and have such a life-changing experience. And I feel the call of God in, in my life as far as the pastor is concerned, and so I definitely consider this an honor. And I don't think I could possibly choose a finer institution than a Masters College and a finer group of people, faculty, staff, and students that I could share my heart with. You know, I was, Tom Halstead uh, told me, when he first told me that I would be preaching at Spurgeon Fest, when he gave me the date, February 6th, I kind of cringed because I didn't have a whole lot of time to really prepare. And uh, I assure you I've done the best that I could possibly do with the time that I've had. And uh, I feel that I'm intelligent enough to not use eisegesis as a technique to understand the scriptures. But at the same time, I don't really feel that I've really qualified enough or have had enough experience to really say that, that I'm an expert on exegesis. So what I've done this morning is I've used a third technique, and it's called, help me, Jesus. <laughs> and basically, <laughs> basically, help me, Jesus, it's, it's self-explanatory. You open the text, you look at it, and you say, help me, Jesus, not to blow this text. And that's how I feel this morning. Well, let's go ahead and look into the Word of God. Open in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 26. Psalm 26. And out of reverence for the Word of God, would you please stand? Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart, for thy loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about thine altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with a voice of thanksgiving and declare all thy wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of thy house and the place where thy glory dwells. Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place in the congregations. I shall bless the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. And Father, I would pray that your truth would touch all of our hearts. And God, I would pray that as we understand your truth, we would apply that to our lives, that we would be indeed men and women of integrity, totally devoted to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We live in a society that is basically a pragmatic society. We live in a society that tells us that the end justifies the means. We live in a very success-oriented society. There's really no moral standards. There's really no code of ethics. There's no value system. 
And if there is one, it's in a constant state of flux because as desires change and wants change, our values change. Unfortunately, that has hit the church also. Society, as it normally does, somehow has an effect on the church. If society has a women's live movement, then it's just a matter of time before the church is going to have a women's live movement, which is seen by the fact that women have more authority now in churches than they ever have had before. And the teaching here at this college and the teaching at the seminary, I believe, is the correct one. I believe it's a biblical one. But that's just not correct. That's not the way things are done. But society has infected the church. And that's a great, great tragedy. A great tragedy. What does it mean to be a man or a woman of integrity? What does it mean? Well, I think David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to tell us here in Psalm 26 what it means to be a man of integrity. Being a man or a woman of integrity is not just obeying a certain law, obeying a certain code or standard of ethics. It's more to it than that. Your integrity is a direct relation on your worship to God. Let's look at the text. Look at verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Vindicate me. The, the proper way to understand this is this. Lord, prove me to be right. Prove me to be right. Now that's quite a, a strong statement for David to make, right? Lord, prove me to be right. Now you get the sense of me that David is under some kind of accusation. He's under some kind of attack. And David is innocent. So David says to God, God, prove me to be right. But David gives us a reason for why he could make such a bold statement. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in you without wavering. Now, it's important to understand right, off, right, right at the beginning that, that integrity here does not mean moral perfection. We're, we're not talking about perfectionism here. That's, that's not the issue. But what we are talking about is uprightness of heart, utter sincerity, a blameless conscience before God. That's what David means. And the word walk here gives you the idea that this has been the whole tenor of David's life. As David has walked in his integrity, that is his way of life. That is part of his existence. It's a consistency. And because of that, David can make that bold statement to God, Lord, prove me to be right. Because I've walked in my integrity. I have walked with an upright heart before both God and man. Second thing David says is, I've not only walked in my integrity, Lord, but I've trusted in you without wavering. I've trusted in you without wavering. David's trust was in God, not in man. It was because of David's trust in God that he didn't waver. He consistently trusted God no matter how bleak the situation may have become. That's why he could boldly assert, prove me to be right, O Lord. Trusting in God without moving or wavering in the midst of a real difficult situation is not always easy to do, is it? A lot of times in our lives, we come into contact with situations, and we have the tendency to want to compromise because things get so tough. We want to compromise. We don't want to trust in God. Lord, I don't think you can handle this situation, so I think I need to handle it myself. And normally what happens is we blow it big time, don't we? Not David. Not David. God expects us to trust in him in those difficult times. Because you see, it's at those difficult times when God is really glorified. 
Because it's at that time that the people have to look at the situation you're in and say, listen, there's no other way that you could have got out of that one unless God got you out of that. And God is greatly glorified. You know, I think of, I think of Daniel chapter 3. And uh, <laughs> the book of Daniel is a great, great book. I mean, you want to talk about men who lived an uncompromising life, who lived lives of integrity. Look at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Boy, these guys were incredible. But one of my favorite verses in chapter 3 of Daniel, you don't have to turn there. You can just listen. If you want to, you can. You remember the situation. Nebuchadnezzar had just built a golden image. It was about 90 feet tall, about 9 feet wide. This was, this was quite an idol. And Nebuchadnezzar had made a decree that all the people, when they heard the sound of the music, they were to bow down and worship that golden image. Well, started in verse 8. This is, what, this is what happened. For this reason at the time, for this reason at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, and all the music, if you fall down and worship the image I've made, very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? The pressure was great. The pressure was great. I mean, I think in a situation like that, I would definitely give in. You know, I mean, I would probably bow down and then ask for forgiveness later. Or at least I would probably say something like, well, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, let me pray about it. Well, we do that all the time, don't we? Whenever we don't want to do something, especially, I mean, there'll be a clear biblical standard that's in question. At least that we're trying to question. And we'll say, let me pray about it. And actually, the only thing we're praying about basically is, God, forgive me because I'm going to blow it. Because I don't trust you at this standpoint. But not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Listen, they don't even take the time to think about it. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We don't need to give you an answer concerning this. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And this is the point right here. Verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Man, what a bold statement. Three men of God. And you talk about integrity, that's integrity. Trusting in God without wavering. But that concept, that type of thinking is totally foreign in the church today. You don't see it. You don't see it. 
I mean, you think of guys like Job who said, I will serve, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. You think of men like that. We don't really have men like that today because there's no integrity. There's no integrity. After making the statement, Lord, prove me to be right and vindicated himself in that way by saying that, God, I've walked in my integrity. And, Lord, not only that, I've trusted in your word without wavering. David says something else. He says, examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart in verse 2. Now, it's important to notice right here that the, uh, the emphasis that David places on the examination the word examine there, the three verbs, examine, try, and test, those three words are used interchangeably throughout the Psalms. And it's interesting to note, or maybe a better way to understand it, to maybe get the emphasis is this. Examine me, O Lord, examine me, examine my heart and my inner man. David was a man who had absolutely nothing to hide from God. Examine me. Lord, don't only prove me to be right. Examine me. Examine my heart. I'm living a pure life. I'm living a life of integrity. I'm walking with you, God. Examine me. How many of us can make that statement today? How many of us can? But just as David proves his vindication, David also proves and shows the support that he has for asking God to examine him. What does he say? For thy loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. For thy loving kindness was before my eyes. David dwells on the love of God that he's known of in the past. Maybe not just that, that personal encounter that he has with God, not just those personal blessings. Maybe David thought back to the Abrahamic covenant. How because of Abraham's faith in God that all the nations would be blessed by that seed. Maybe he thought back to God delivering Israel from bondage out of Egypt. And maybe David thought back to the time personally when he was tending the sheep as a young man and how God sent Samuel to come and anoint David, that David would be the next king. Now the Spirit of God was mightily upon David and he confronted the giant pagan Goliath and slew him with a single stone. David thought about the love of God in his own life and that's one thing that we need to think about. I mean, one thing that helps me understand my position, one thing that helps me understand how to serve God and, and be a person of integrity is by thinking about all the things that God has done for me, his great love for me. But that's not all. That's not all. David also says, I've walked in thy truth. I've walked in thy truth. David could walk in the truth of God because he knew from past experience that God wouldn't let him down. God's not going to let me down. When we're walking in God's truth, we'll be right smack dab in the middle of where God's blessings flow. And there's no better place to be. But oh, how many times, how many times I have put myself out of that realm of God's blessings because I wanted to walk the way Gary wanted to walk. And I blew it. What David is saying here, it is so important to understand that. We have to walk the truth. You know, a lot of people talk really good. They talk really good. And I have to admit, you know, I was really under conviction when they asked me to preach because one thing I've been going through lately has really been a struggle. It's really been a struggle. And one of the difficult things 
about maybe feeling called to be a pastor or feeling that God has called you into some kind of leadership role is a conviction that so many times in our lives we blow it. So many times we blow it. And we're just not the men that God wants us to be, and that is so humbling. And I know that Dr. Smith and Russ and, and all the leaders, the Bible faculty, all the men who have led churches and serve in leadership positions can relate to that. Because you want to be a man of integrity. You want to be the kind of man that, that God can support. Walking in God's truth keeps us in that realm where those blessings flow. And if we don't walk in God's truth, then we take ourselves out of that realm. And when we do that, we are on our own. We're on our own. I mean, sure, God, if you're a Christian, God's still in control of your life. But in a negative sense, God's going to let you reap the consequences of your sin. He has no choice. It's just tragic how many times we forfeit the blessing of God because we want to do things our own way. Well, verses 1 through 3, how I've broken it down basically has been that David has just now proclaimed his integrity. He's proclaimed it. Lord, prove me to be right and examine me. I'm an innocent man. I am clean, God. Prove me to be right. And in contrast with that, David in verses 4 through 8 now gives the proof of his integrity. Now gives the proof of it. Notice, first of all, in verses 4 and 5, what David avoids. That's what he avoids. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. David steers clear of evil men. David will have nothing to do with evil men. Nothing at all. Unfortunately, the men as David is, is speaking of here in verses 4 and 5 are the same men that are leading the church today in certain areas. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. You know, we live in a society that has a mindset, and this is in Christianity, that God is love, love, love. And anytime you come down hard on anything, whether it's doctrinal, whether it's practical, whatever it is within the church, the time will come, and it almost always happens, where someone will say, well, brother, you really need to love that person. And it doesn't seem to be any kind of understanding of the holiness of God. Listen, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that God is love, love, love. What does it say about God? He's holy, holy, holy. That's right. We serve a holy God. You know, I think of, I don't want to beat this down because it's been spoken of so frequently. I think of Jim Baker. I think about how, you know, I've actually heard people say this, you know, when Jim Baker was, was nailed, <laughs> and he, uh, the sentence, after the sentencing came out, I remember people saying, you know, I really think that that judge was really hard on Jim Baker. He was really hard. He was not just. You're right. He wasn't just. Jim Baker had better be glad that he lives in a democratic society, not a theocratic society. Because if he was living in a theocracy, Jim Baker would be dead. And the same thing can be said about a man like Jimmy Swaggart. Neither one of these men have absolutely an ounce of integrity in any part of their bones. And there's great, great question whether or not they're even saved. Now, one of Jimmy Swaggart's tears is going to help him one iota when he faces God. 
And I don't want to start beating down these, these guys, but since I'm having such a good time doing it, let me mention somebody else. A guy named Benny Hinn. I'm from Orlando, Florida. Benny Hinn is a pastor. Well, forgive me, he's, he's not a pastor. He's the chief entertainer of this place called Orlando Christian Center. I had a friend who once went to Orlando Christian Center. Let me show you, let me show you something about, let me show you something about Benny Hinn. Let me show you something about these evil men, these, these evil leaders, okay? Let me, let me tell you something. This is what he did. They played a tape over the intercom, and it sounded like doves' wings ruffling as the people were praying. He wanted them to think that the Spirit had come upon that congregation. Isn't that amazing? That man has absolutely no fear of God whatsoever. And one day he will be held accountable for that. And I pity him. Not only does David prove from a man's perspective by disassociating himself, avoiding these evil men, David now shows what he does do, verses 6 through 8. David avoids evil, wicked men, but David associates himself with the worship of God. Now, we're not only in the middle of the text, but we're also at the heart of the text. This is the answer right here to how somebody can live a life of integrity. Let's look at it. I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about thine altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all thy wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of thy house in a place where thy glory dwells. I shall wash my hands in innocence. Basically, this is symbolic of purity on David's part. David has just now said, I have nothing to do with the evil, wicked men in this generation, God. But what I do do is I am innocent before you. I wash my hands. I have a pure heart before I come to you. And the idea is found basically from Deuteronomy 21. You don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy 21. And basically this is dealing with the expiation of a crime. This is what it says. If a slain person is found lying in the open country in the land which the Lord your God gives to you to possess and it is not known who has struck him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain one. And it shall be that the city which is nearest to the slain man, that is, the elders of that city, shall take a heifer of the herd which has not been worked and which has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which has not been plowed or sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him, and to bless in the name of the Lord. And every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. And all the elders of that city, which is nearest to the slain man, shall wash their, shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. So what David is saying is symbolic of innocence. I am innocent God. Now it's very important, and the reason it's important is because of the next verse, or the next half of that verse. I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about thine altar, O Lord. David understands how important it is to come to God with a pure heart. A pure heart. So many times we like to run into God's presence. And every time we do, most of the time, it's because we just want something. Not because we're there to really worship God. 
But I think as we see these, these three verses, what we will see is that the reason David could live a life of integrity is because David was consumed with wanting to be in the presence of God, of wanting to experience the glory of God. And I will go about thine altar, O Lord. And I think this verse is the key verse to understanding what it all means to live a life of integrity, is your worship. You want to live a life of integrity, you've got to worship God. Look at verse 7. That I may proclaim with a voice of thanksgiving and declare all thy wonders. David cleanses himself, he comes to God, he goes to God's altar, and he praises God. And he goes there with a clean and a pure heart. That is what consumed David. Now look at verse 8. O oh Lord, I love the habitation of thy house and the place where thy glory dwells. Now, we're not talking necessarily here of corporate worship, okay? David's not saying, oh Lord, I love the habitation of thy house and, and we're to see it as being the church. That's not necessarily so. What David is saying is this, I love the habitation of thy house, God, because that is where your glory dwells. You know, for me personally, I can draw much, much closer to God when I'm by myself than I can at church. I don't know about you, but that's true for me. But the point that David is making and the point that I'm trying to make now is this. If you're going to live a life of integrity, you must be a man consumed or a woman consumed with the worship of God, the proper worship of God, worshiping God with a pure heart and a pure mind and pure desires. I love the habitation of thy house. The word love there is the same word that was used uh, of Abraham's love for Isaac. And we know how much Abraham loved Isaac. It was because of Abraham's great love. That's why it was such a sacrifice for Abraham to have that sacrifice Isaac. God saw that. And God blessed Abraham for that. It's the same love used in Psalm 11:7. It describes love, God's love for righteousness. It says God is righteous. God loves righteousness. So you can see the unity there. You can see the intensity there. You can see the intimacy there. With how much David loves to be in the place where the glory of God dwells. And that's really key. That is so key. Because as we spend time in that, in that sweet fellowship and communion with God, that's when you come away like Moses with that glow upon you. And whereas we may not have to wear that veil, there is a difference in our lives. And that difference definitely has an effect on people that we touch. David could live a life of integrity. David could say, God, prove me to be right. God, examine my life. Because David knew how to worship God. It says in Psalm 27, right across from here, when thou didst say, seek my face, my heart said to thee, thy face, O Lord, shall I seek. They knew how important it was to worship God. When you spend time with God like that, you will be a man and woman of integrity. Because your life's going to be different. Your life's going to be different. Verses 9 to 12 basically is David's prayer of integrity. His prayer of integrity. Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hand is a wicked scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. That's his petition. God, don't associate me with these men. 
God, the day's going to come when you're going to judge these men. And Lord, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't want to be a part of that. As Christians, we don't have anything to worry about. But one thing we can learn from that passage is this. We should be very thankful for the fact that God is not going to count us guilty, but that he will count us righteous by his grace and by the blood of Christ. And we can say, thank you, Lord, that my soul will not be taken away with the sinners, that my soul will not be taken away with the evil, wicked men. We can be thankful for that. And then David tells us his promise. This is his promise. But as for me, showing contrast, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. The whole course, again, of David's life is one of integrity, uprightness of heart, a blameless conscience before God. David could say with Paul, I have a blameless conscience before both God and men. The course of his life was one of integrity because David knew how to worship God. He knew how to worship God. This is what he says in verse 12. My foot stands on a level place. And that's great. That is so great. Listen, when you walk with God, when you are doing the things that God wants you to do, and the chief end of man, as we know, is to glorify God. And we can glorify God more when we are in the presence of God and we praise him and we come to him with clean hands and a clean heart. When we do that, we really glorify God. Because you know what? When you do that, your life is different. So you can't go into the presence of God with a clean heart and have spiritual intimacy with God and not have your life affected by that. You can't do it. It's impossible. Now, you may think that you can go into God's presence and then come out and live a life of compromise. And I would say to that, the reason you're living a life of compromise is because you're just not seeing God. You're not seeking the face of God. Man, I tell you, as I read some of the stuff by the Puritans, and I am absolutely blown away about the intensity and the desire that they have to want to know God. I want to tell you guys, you know, that is really what it's all about. The reason you are here at the Master's College, the reason I'm here at the Master's College and whether you leave here to attend seminary or some of you, whether you get married and you're a housewife or, or you're a layperson, whatever it may be, the reason you're here is to know God, to know God, not to know about God. And sometimes we get caught up in that, don't we? We get caught up in the academic realm. But there's so much more to it than that. There's so much more to it than that. Knowing God in an intimate way. You know, most of us, when we think of intimacy, we think of a time in our lives when, for most of us, me included, and someday you'll be married. And you think that your wife or your husband, you think that that has to be the, probably the greatest time of intimacy that I could possibly experience in my life. That's the wrong goal. And it's not true. The greatest intimacy that you can ever have is seeking the face of God and knowing him. Because that's the only thing that will fill a Christian's heart. And that'll take care of that desire and that hunger to be all that God would have for us to be. And as you do that, you will stand on level ground. You're not going to slide. You're not going to stumble. 
because you have God as your unearthly protector. God will support you. God will strongly support you. And I like what David says. Redeem me and be gracious to me. David knew that he deserved God's redemption. And he knew that he deserved God's grace. Because he was doing what God wanted him to do. And he ends by saying, in the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. And that's kind of the outcome of it, of it isn't it? Man, you live a life of integrity. You live a life of dedication, total devotion to God, wanting, seeking to know God. And man, all you can do is praise God. Praise is constantly on your lips. And that is a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. It really is. Do you want to be a man or a woman of, of integrity? Do you really want to be a person of integrity? If you do, then understand this. To consistently walk with an upright heart, with clean hands, with the boldness to say, God, prove me right, examine me, God, in the face of accusations. And you better seek God. And you better spend almost every ounce of energy you have knowing God. Seeking to know God in an intimate way. And you know how to do that. I know you're mature enough and you're intelligent enough to know how to do that. Nothing in life is more important than serving God. Nothing is more important than that. And I tell you, we're living in a society where there's not too many Christians that have much integrity. I would pray that we could be that beacon of light. And that maybe the 1990s will turn things around. Maybe. <laughs> it's kind of a big vision to have. But I think it's a proper one to have. May God help us to be men and women of integrity. Let's pray.